Welcome to Between the Lines, presenting news and analysis of critical issues affecting our communities, the nation, and the world. I'm Scott Harris. This week we present investigative reporter and best-selling author Greg Palast, who examines Republican voter suppression in Georgia that corporate media largely missed, now likely to be adopted by other GOP-controlled states. Aliyah Bacchetti, a Starbucks union organizer, who talks about the tactics being used by the company to slow down and stop the coffee store's workers' success in their fight for union recognition. And Dr. Jennifer Nuzzo, director of the Pandemic Center at Brown University School of Public Health, who discusses her concern regarding the high rate of COVID nursing home deaths and low rate of uptake for Omicron booster vaccines. But first, we begin with a summary of some of the week's underreported news stories. In early November, the Ethiopian government and Tigrayan rebels signed a ceasefire agreement that permitted humanitarian aid to be delivered to desperate people living in northern Ethiopia's war zone. But according to a Washington Post investigation, it was just one year ago that Ethiopian guards at a prison camp opened fire on active and retired Tigrayan soldiers in one of the most deadly massacres of the Civil War since it began two years ago. The Post quoted witnesses who claim that 83 Tigrayan prisoners were killed at the Marab Abaya prison camp as they celebrated the Holy Day of St. Michael in November 2021. Prisoners were shot by guards and others were hacked to death by villagers. The post-investigation found that Ethiopian guards have killed imprisoned Tigrayan soldiers in at least seven other locations. None of these incidents have previously been reported. Details about the massacres have been revealed as both sides in the conflict are hammering out provisions of the ceasefire announced last month. But critical questions are now being raised about whether or not there will be accountability for war crimes and other atrocities committed during the Civil War. Over the last 30 years, Mexico has become a wealthier nation and is now the world's 15th largest economy. After trade pacts were signed with the U.S. and Canada, the country's exports have grown from 12% of GDP in 1993 to 40% in 2021. But the distribution of wealth within Mexico is geographically unequal. Manufacturing plants along the northern border and in central Mexico produce cars, aerospace parts, and medical devices. By contrast, the southern states of Chiapas, Guerrero, and Oaxaca are plagued by poverty and illiteracy. Mexican presidents have long promised but failed to invest in the South. But in 2018, Andres Manuel López Obrador, Mexico's first president born in the South, launched three of four major infrastructure projects in the region, including an oil refinery in Tabasco and the Maya Train, a railway that will run through five southern states. The president is also upgrading roads, railways, and ports along the Tehuantepec Isthmus, the shortest route between Mexico's two coasts. 
However, according to The Economist magazine, some critics charge that the oil project will slow Mexico's transition to clean energy, which could discourage foreign investment. There's also opposition to the railroad project by locals who will lose their land. At the same time, the U.S. government is making small investments in Central America and southern Mexico in the hope that improving economic conditions will discourage emigration north. In early November, the U.S. Supreme Court agreed to hear a case brought by the Navajo Nation that could have far-reaching impacts on tribal water rights in the Colorado River Basin. The Navajo argue in their suit that the Department of Interior has a responsibility, grounded in treaty law, to protect the tribe's future access to water from the Colorado River. But several states and water districts have filed petitions opposing the tribe, saying that the river is already fully allocated. As water levels fall and states face cuts amid a two-decade-long mega-drought caused by climate change and aridification, tribes are working to ensure their water rights are fully recognized and accessible. A century ago, states reached an agreement to divide among themselves the 15 million acre-feet of water that used to flow through the Colorado River. In recent decades, however, the river has supplied closer to 12 million acre-feet that 40 million people now rely on. Scientists have warned water managers in the basin that they need to start planning for a 40% decrease in future water supplies. Meanwhile, tribal nations are legally entitled to between 3.2 and 3.8 million acre-feet of ground and surface water from the Colorado River system. The Grist magazine reports that indigenous nations in the Colorado River Basin could be serious power brokers in crucial future water negotiations, but they face historical, legal, and practical obstacles. This week's news summary was compiled by Bob Nixon. For Between the Lines, I'm Anna Manzo. When Georgia Senator Ralphia Warnock won his December 6 runoff election against Republican opponent Herschel Walker, Democrats were assured of holding a 51-seat majority in the upper house. Media coverage of the runoff election featured dozens of laudatory stories about the high turnout of voters across the state, noting the long lines and many hours it took to vote, especially in the black community. In his victory speech, Senator Warnock warned Georgians in the nation that despite his narrow win, there should be no complacency about the corrosive effect of voter suppression laws, especially Georgia's notorious SB202 law that made it more difficult for early in-person voting, voting by absentee ballot, and using ballot drop boxes. Your reporter spoke with investigative journalist Greg Pallast, a New York Times bestselling author whose new documentary film is titled Vigilante, Georgia's Vote Suppression Hitman. Here, Pallas provides a summary of his investigation into voter suppression in Georgia, reflecting on the reduced number of votes cast in the 2022 midterm election, 
and the likelihood that the state's voter suppression legislation will serve as a model for similar laws that will be adopted by other GOP-controlled states. I mean, every news outlet, National Petroleum Radio, uh, New York Times, Wall Street Journal, even The Guardian, shame on you. Of course, I, that's one of the reasons I resigned from The Guardian, have reported the same phrase again and again that there was a record turnout in Georgia. MSNBC, everyone, because both the left and right love this lie that there was this record turnout in Georgia. I didn't, you can't find an exception to it except from Greg Pallast and my, and my uh, direct outlets and now between the lines. Let's start out with just the facts, ma'am. Let me read you this from the official site of the Secretary of State of Georgia. The turnout in this runoff was 4,484,954. That was two years ago at the last runoff between Warnock and Kelly Leffler. This year, it's 3,538,910, three and a half million. Let me do the arithmetic. Two years ago, it was four and a half million votes. That was the turnout. This year, it's three and a half million votes. That's a one million vote drop. Now, I guess you could say, Scott, that that's a record. It was a record fall, a nosedive in turnout. I want to repeat that. One million votes. I read you the exact number. You can go to TruthDig in a couple days and uh, get my full report with all the data and the links. But you know something? Your average journalist in America, especially in America and in England, became journalists because they flunked math. Besides my degree in economics, I was a professor of statistics. And I'm not afraid of numbers. And I look at them and not the press releases. The Republican BS story, press release after press release, record turnout, record turnout, record turnout. And in the TV news, they said the same thing. Look at those long lines. Man, people are voting in record numbers. It's all a complete absolute bag of horse stuff. It's wrong. It's a lie. I don't know what to do except to say somehow we got to get the truth out. Could you tick off some of the mechanisms in Georgia's voter suppression law passed and signed by Governor Kemp? What were the mechanisms in that law? The, the runoff was dropped from 17 days to seven in early voting. So, of course, the lines were longer. You drop the number of days you can walk in and vote early by more than half. If you go to a bank and there's three tellers open and they say we're slamming two windows shut, the one teller left is going to have longer lines. It doesn't mean that people are more enthusiastic. So, number one, they cut early voting, which is the majority of African-Americans vote early. Atlanta votes early. The second biggest chunk of African-American voters are mail-in voting. They cut the runoff time from 60 days to 28 which made it nearly impossible for the counties to print, mail out, for you to uh, send back the ballots. And in fact, uh, two years ago, you didn't have to apply for a ballot for the runoff because you'd already applied for the absentee ballot for the general. This time you had to apply. There was no time. Again, 90% drop in mail-in ballots because you couldn't literally get them and get them back. It's that simple. In January 2021, you had 107 mail-in drop boxes in Atlanta. Now, you have to understand, Scott, you cannot mail in your ballot and have it postmarked by Election Day. In Georgia, it has to be physically in the hands 
of voting officials on election day. It's not like America. Georgia's not part of America. It's different. That meant you can't mail in your ballot. You basically have to use a drop box, and they cut the number of drop boxes just in Atlanta, only in Atlanta, from 107 to 25. And at the same time, they took the white rural Republican areas, and they actually increased the drop boxes. They took the drop boxes from black Atlanta and moved them to white rural Georgia. You have called Georgia the laboratory of voter suppression. What are the chances that we are going to see this voter suppression law from Georgia, SB 202, exported to other Republican-controlled states? As a statistician, I'd say 99.988%. Whatever you see in Georgia then goes to Texas, Florida, uh, Alabama, Pennsylvania, and especially Wisconsin. We're very worried about the vote suppression techniques that are being taken from Georgia to swing state Wisconsin. They were saying this film is really about 2024 and the vote suppression techniques you will see there. That was investigative reporter Greg Pallast, a New York Times bestselling author whose new documentary film is titled Vigilante, Georgia's Vote Suppression Hitman. Learn more about Pallas' investigations into voter suppression in Georgia and the film by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. Workers at Starbucks coffee stores across the U.S. are fighting for union recognition. Working with Starbucks Workers United, an affiliate of the Service Employees International Union, employees or partners at 345 stores in 39 states have filed petitions to unionize. 264 Starbucks stores in 36 states have won union elections, with just 59 stores losing their vote. Thus far, the unionization drive covers only 2% of the company's 250,000 U.S. employees. Starbucks CEO Howard Schultz, who portrays himself as a fair liberal boss, is opposing the unionization campaign, despite being counseled by some of his closest advisors that he should remain neutral. As part of his anti-union tactics, Schultz has raised wages and improved benefits for workers who have not joined the union which caused the Federal National Labor Relations Board to file a complaint against the company for discrimination. Between the Lines Melinda Tuhu spoke with Aliyah Bacchetti, a pro-union former Starbucks employee who was fired and now volunteers with Starbucks Workers United. Here she explained some of the anti-union tactics being used by the company and the union prioritizing non-economic issues, such as demanding a non-discrimination policy fair treatment for all workers, and remediation of the mold in Starbucks ice machines. Across the board, Starbucks is doing whatever they can to not fairly bargain with us. They are using tactics that are just extremely off-putting and sad. They don't want to come to the table at all. And when they have come to the table, they have argued that our right to with the COVID and everything, some people can't leave their stores, some people can't go. So it is their right to be able to log into Zoom and, you know, hear in on the hearing of what's going on in their store. Starbucks has refused to allow people to do that. And they said, if you're going to participate, you have to be in the room, but then they won't give people days off if needed to go. And it's, it's ridiculous. Like, and they're just really wasting everyone's time. And, and I think they think they assume running out the clock is the best option right now. Um, instead of just doing what's fair and what's just and just coming to the table and negotiating with us and, and letting us get our contracts. 
I, I know that Amazon started, you know, improving people's salaries and even benefits to try to keep the unions out. And they, you know, have succeeded in some places in keeping it out. There's been votes against the union, although, you know, the one in Staten Island was in favor and that was a huge deal. But in terms of, uh, you know, your pay and benefits, are all the people part time or, you know, can you just tell me a little bit about the situation, you know, before you were fired and what the other workers are dealing with? At least in Maryland and where I live, the rate was $13 an hour. It has gone up since August 1st um, as one of Starbucks tactics, kind of like Amazon, uh, kind of cushioning the blow and giving people more benefits to try to balance out and, and kick the union out. So they did go up to $15 an hour. And, you know, the same benefits that you hear online, like the Starbucks schooling was something that anyone could participate in as long as they had a minimum of 20 hours a week. Um, then they could go to ASU for free on with Starbucks. Um, a lot of the things that they claim that are in their benefits that tend to be quote unquote free do tend to be tax benefits. So uh, it's free up front. You're not paying them right then and there, but you will get taxed on it. What is Red Cup Day and what happened on that day that was significant? It's a very significant day. It's, it's kind of their kickoff to their holiday season going in from Thanksgiving into Christmas. Everyone's ordering their favorite holiday drinks around that time. It's a very, very, very significant money day for Starbucks, obviously. What we decided um, was to take action by kind of making them pay attention on this particular day. We felt that the best way to get them to listen to us and finally want to do something was if we kind of shut down a couple of stores those days and, and go on strike. So collectively, over 100 stores went on strike that day across the nation and we handed out our own red cups. So we had union red cups. It had a little Grinch holding an ornament and it was very cute, very significant to kind of how we feel about Howard Schultz stealing Christmas and stealing joy from people. So that's why we kind of associated with the Grinch. And we also had beanies for like strike workers or people that were standing on the line with us and supporting us and not crossing the line. It was a very successful day. A lot of stores got shut down. A lot of stores didn't open up some stores tried to bring in their managers to actually work, but I don't think it was super successful as they thought it was going to be. We want people to know that what Starbucks is doing is bullying and union busting uh, is in fact really gross and awful and disgusting. And the tactics that they're using are honestly like inhumane. You're taking away people's money, people's opportunity to work right before you know, it gets cold outside. We're having partners that are fired at crazy rates. I think we're up to like 146 partners, 40 plus partners um, that have been fired. And some of these people could go homeless right before the holiday season when it's getting cold outside. So in terms of the bargaining, well, there isn't even any bargaining, but if there were to be bargaining, is it store by store or say there's 10 different stores that have unionized? Are you all in the same union or are you all in sort of separate things? Yeah, so it is store-to-store -store bargaining contracts. Um, across the board, most of us have the same ask. There are going to be a couple of different asks in different regions, and it's really based on, you know, the store in particular and what they want. And then the reason we do that is because the union isn't like this third entity person coming in deciding what we should and should benefit. The union is the people that work at that store. So while, yes, we are all across on the same union, what we would want in certain stores are really, really going to be dependent on the people in that store and the people in that area. And that's why it's contract to contract. That was Aliyah Bacchetti, a Starbucks Workers United union organizer.
Learn more about the Starbucks Union Drive and the company's anti-union tactics by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. The coronavirus pandemic, now in its third year, has killed over one million Americans, with the World Health Organization estimating that the global death toll is more than six million. Among all wealthy nations, the U.S. has the highest COVID-19 deaths per capita. With holiday family gatherings and an increase in cold-weather indoor activity, the spread of COVID is on the rise across the U.S., According to the Kaiser Family Foundation, people 65 and older accounted for 75% of all American COVID deaths. Today, Americans 65 and over account for 90% of new COVID deaths, an especially large share given that 94% of American seniors are vaccinated. Nursing home deaths have remained high, while older Americans' rates of receiving COVID boosters have been lower than expected. As people have grown weary of the pandemic, mask mandates, social distancing, and testing have declined. Federal funding for testing and COVID treatments have also fallen away. Your reporter spoke with Dr. Jennifer Nozo, professor of epidemiology and director of the Pandemic Center at Brown University's School of Public Health. Here she talks about her concern regarding the high rate of COVID nursing home deaths and the low rate of the elderly population receiving the latest Omicron bivalent vaccines, which expose the inadequacies of the U.S. public health system. So the worry that we have now is that while um, people over the age of 65 initially had good uptake of the, the vaccine, for many people it's been a really long time since they've last gotten a, a dose of that vaccine. And so we're quite worried about the low uptake of boosters among people who remain the highest risk for developing severe illness were they to be infected. And again, that's the, the elderly. You know, right now, the deaths that are occurring in the country are by and large, um, not just over the age of 65, but over the age of 75. So it really speaks to the importance of older folks remaining up to date with their vaccinations. And unfortunately, we are seeing um, not as much use of boosters in these um, age groups as we'd like to see, but in particular, really, really worried about um, older folks who are living in congregate settings like nursing homes, uh, where Kaiser Family Foundation just put out data showing that fewer than half of residents in nursing homes um, are up to date on their vaccinations. So that really creates a lot of vulnerabilities in these settings that, um, you know, is unnecessary. Uh, with an additional dose of vaccine, we can really uh, bring down the risk to patients in those settings. Dr. Nozo, earlier this year, President Biden pronounced the pandemic is over or almost over. And I know there was a lot of frustration in the medical community with that pronouncement. Why do we have local, state, and our federal public health system not focusing more attention on the elderly living in nursing homes who are so vulnerable to COVID and even other infections. Why isn't there a concerted effort to get these folks who 
most of them would be fine with getting another vaccine. They already took a couple or three. Why isn't there more of an emphasis on getting protection for these folks? I, you know, was was um, disappointed earlier on that there wasn't a um, clearer message about the saliency of making sure, um, above all, people who are the highest risk for severe illness were they to be infected, um, to make sure that they, above all, are the ones that get boosted. Um, but now, you know, I think there has been a changing message, and I think you'll hear the administration. Um, I've certainly been hearing uh, more of an emphasis on making sure, you know, listen, if you're above the age of 65, make sure you get boosted. Make sure if you develop symptoms, you get tested. And if you test positive, make sure you t- get a prescription per Paxlovid. Um, those two things, boosted and, and the use of Paxlovid, if you're at high risk, um, those two things combined would dramatically bring down uh, the, the deaths that are occurring um, due to COVID. And unfortunately, there's a real, I think, education gap, not just among patients, but also providers about the importance of that. And so I think there's just been some missed opportunities to educate along the way. And now we're sort of making up for it. I wish we were doing it a bit earlier when we weren't heading into what's possibly a you know rising COVID season. There's been an erosion of public health precautions being taken across the country, such as masking, COVID boosters and vaccinations, as, you, as you've been talking about, social distancing and testing. As far as I understand it, Congress has even hesitated to provide additional funding to provide the money for testing. I guess there's subsidies for Paxlovid that will soon be withdrawn. What would you like to see Congress do in terms of addressing this ongoing pandemic that has not ended yet and is still a, a major threat? Yeah. So first of all, I would love um, for there to be clear and unequivocal you know, messaging from our leaders about the importance of, of getting boosted, the importance of continuing to get tested for COVID uh, so that you know if you're infected and you don't spread it to others and that you can access Paxlovid if you are in a category of patient that would benefit from it. Uh, that kind of messaging, I think, has to happen. And unfortunately, when we have a Congress that's not willing to pass additional funding and, you know, pronouncements that the pandemic is over, that really muddies the message a bit. Um, but secondly, you know, listen, we have to make sure people can continue to access testing, that they can go and get vaccinated without worrying about costs and that they can access um, treatments, again, without worrying about costs. And one of my greatest fears is that if we make it such that these tools are only accessible by people with insurance or people with means, um, we are basically concentrating the harms of this pandemic in exactly the ways that it has happened over time. We've seen quite clearly that um, income has been an important um, factor in who can protect themselves and, and who can't. So we can't continue to reinforce those disparities. We have to make sure people can access these life-saving tools without worry about cost and without other barriers. That was Dr. Jennifer Nozo, Professor of Epidemiology and Director of the Pandemic Center at Brown University School of Public Health. Learn more about the inadequacies of the U.S. public health system response to the ongoing COVID pandemic by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. Listening to Between the Lines, a weekly program presenting news and analysis of critical issues affecting our communities, the nation, and the world. Between the Lines is produced and distributed by Squeaky Wheel Productions. If you have suggestions for topics and guests, 
please contact Between the Lines through our website at btlonline.org, where you can hear our current and archive programs and streaming audio and support our show. There you can also subscribe to free weekly podcasts, program summaries, and interview transcripts. Follow us on Facebook at Between the Lines Radio News Magazine and on Twitter at BTL Radio News. Thanks for listening on CKDU in Halifax, Nova Scotia, KYRS in Spokane, Washington, KIDE in Hoopa, California, dozens of other community radio stations across the U.S. and abroad, and wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Our theme music was written by Richard Hill and performed by Mikata. This week's program was produced by Susan Bramhall, Mary Hunt, Anna Manzo, Bob Nixon, Melinda Tuhus, and Jeff Yates. For Between the Lines, I'm Scott Harris.